preached and the people misunderstood. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. Moses, the great prophet of old, told God's people what the law required to be right with God. And knowledge of the law was not enough. Knowledge of the law is not enough. To be righteous before God by the law requires being a doer of the law, not a hearer only. So the Jewish people got God's law, but it wasn't enough the fact that they got God's law and none of the Canaanites got God's law. It was... It was in their possession, but it wasn't about just simply being in their possession. Those who had the law had to do the law, obey the law. That's what is expected. God tells us how we should live as He told those people in the early days of receiving the law through Moses how they should live. And they were responsible to be a doer of the law. It was required. They were to live by it. Those who have the law were to live by those laws. That was required. Obedience. And here lies the problem. Upon receiving the law, and then we look at the religions of the world upon receiving their law or their sacred literature, here lies the problem. People think that upon hearing a law, they have the ability to do the law. That hearing of the law only gives us power to actually do the law. And we all know this. We all know things that we should be doing that we're not doing. How often do do we know that I should have a spirit of grace and kindness to my children at all times? And then we walk in the room and step on a Lego and grace goes out the window. Or we ask them to clean their room over and over again and they don't clean their room. And we know that, okay, we are to be gracious and kind and forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. But God is a whole lot better forgiver than I am. And so instead of grace, instead of forgiveness, I can respond in a way that is not helpful. Knowledge of the law doesn't help me to do the law. I know the law, but I'm called to be a doer of the law. Obedience. The reality of God's law is that God's law was intended to expose and kill us, not actually give us life. And the problem with the message, not the problem with the message, the problem with with the way the people heard the message when Moses preached it, is they thought, okay, I'm just going to get to work. This is one of the last times that Paul, in this magnum opus of his, as he's collecting all of his thoughts through the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is one of the last times in the book of Romans where he really just nails down the doctrine of justification in such an explicit explicit manner. He's never going to leave that, but as far as, I mean, an absolute explicit way, this is one of the last times he gets at us about the doctrine of justification. Moses preached the law, and the people were to hear it in such a way that they trembled. They should have trembled, realizing, I can't do that. But instead, they said, yeah, we can do that. We'll do that and live. And we know, according to the unfolding of uh, a revelation in the Bible that we see they didn't do that. They didn't obey God's law. And we know that we don't obey God's law. But the message the world preaches and the message of salvation by the law is the same across the board. You can do it. You can do it. Try harder. Try harder. Work harder. Just make it as simple as possible. Give you, give you the law in bite-sized pieces and then you can just 
you can tackle it and achieve it and do it. It's the same message. There's no hope in it. The law tells us what to do, but it kills us. It does not bring us life. It exposes us as we draw near. So sermon number one is a righteousness that is based on the law, but chapter, chapter 10, verse 6 tells us about a second sermon. There's another sermon, and this sermon speaks. It's got words. There's vocal cords that come with it. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, it says, it speaks. It's got words that go with it. And what does righteousness based on faith say? Righteousness based on faith tells us to not say something. Here's what it is. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. The righteousness that is by faith, it says something. There's a message here. There's a message to know, to hear, to learn, to memorize, to go back to, to remember. And it tells us what not to say. And what is it we're never to say? We're never to say, who will ascend into heaven? Ascend. A journey. We shall never say into our heart, through this righteousness that is by faith, we shall never say, I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to get to Him. We've got to tell ourselves, I can't get to Jesus. And I don't need to get to Jesus. I don't need to climb that mountain, ascend into the heavens to get Him to come down. I don't need to go on a journey to the center of the earth to find Him. I don't have to go down to the abyss to bring Him up. He's not in a grave for me to find. And the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart that Jesus is far away. You don't have to climb. You don't have to dig. There's no journey to make. And we need to know it. There's error in both. The righteousness that is by faith says, do not say Christ is far. We don't have to get Christ's attention. We don't have to alert Him or alarm Him to our need. We are not to say in any way that Jesus is is unconcerned because Jesus is near, because He has come. This is what Christmas is all about. The righteousness that is by faith recognizes that Christ is near us. That He has done for us what we could never do for Him. We can't make it to heaven. We can't ascend the mountain called righteousness. But Jesus has descended and He, in fact, has also ascended. He is the one who has done the work. So righteousness that is by faith tells us some things not to say. And we should never in any way, under any circumstance, as a believer in Jesus Christ, say, Christ is far from me. Or I've got to do more to get to Him. Or if, if I would do a certain thing, or a list of certain things, then Christ would be nearer to me. We should never tell ourselves that. We have to regularly tell us that uh, Christ is not far from me. He is not unconcerned, for, unconcerned with me. I am not more concerned about Him than He is concerned with me. I am not trying to get to Him more than He is present with me. 
So, what does righteousness by faith actually say? If it tells us what not to say, then what does righteousness by faith actually say? It tells us what not to say, then what does it positively say? Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Why are we to not say who will ascend or who will descend? Because the word is near. And we need to tell us that the word of truth, the righteousness that is by faith, is as close to our mouth and heart as possible. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, that Christ is here. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this passage, I love this, says this, Why are we so sure of this? The answer, according to Paul, is that there is no need for you to go up into the heavens to drag the Savior down. Because the Savior came down Himself. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, That is how the righteousness of faith speaks. He has come down and those who try to climb up into heaven, when He has come down, are absolute fools. They cannot do it to start with, but they should not even try. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 14. And not only that, you need not go down to the depths to try to bring Him up again from the grave. Coming into this world and bearing our burden cost Him His life and He was buried in a grave. You say, He has been defeated. He is finished. If only He could have conquered. But you need now say that He is conquered. He has conquered. He has come up from the dead. We do not have to bring Him up. He has done everything Himself. Everything that is necessary for us. The word of faith that we proclaim is that God is not far from us. He is with us. When we speak, it's His words coming out of His breath that's powering our very words. He is in our heart. He's not dear. He's not not far. He's very, very near. So we don't have to ascend. And we don't have to descend. So how does faith respond? If the righteousness that is by faith tells us what not to say, and then it speaks to say that it's as close as our mouth and our heart, How does true faith respond to such a message? Verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I love the simplicity of the verses we're going to be looking at. The world tries to complicate everything. And sometimes as Christians, we can complicate things as well. In the last couple chapters, there's been some really clear, uncomplicated things. But some things, if we take them together, that are hard to understand. But I want you to hear this, the simplicity of this, and then call some of you who don't know Jesus to respond to Him this morning. To come to Christ requires no work on your part. None. Your hands don't have to be calloused. Your mind doesn't have to be fried from trying to figure out life. You don't have to know a ton of things or be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to have wisdom. You have to have nothing. And that's offensive. Because to have nothing wars against everything 
that our mind and heart loves. I want to have something to offer him, to exchange. Please give me a mountain to climb. Or please give me a valley to descend. But don't tell me to not have anything. But the text says, faith responds in this way. Confess that Jesus is Lord. If you don't know Jesus this morning, this wasn't a trap or a grand scheme to get you here and then to tell you about Jesus. But you're trapped. And I want you to know Jesus this morning. I really do. And if you don't know him, there's family members here and friends or whoever that really want you to know Jesus as well. And it's not hard. Confess that Jesus is Lord. You know what that means? To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that you're not Lord. That you're not in charge of your life. Invictus by... The poem Invictus by, should have put this in my notes, uh, by the African Prime Minister, or Great Britain Prime Minister, somebody, Nelson Mandela, I, don't know, I think, said that destiny is yours, and he bit, went on this big rampage in this poem Invictus. And here's the reality you're not in charge of your life. You may think you are, you're not Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord. And you may say, well, I'm not even a Christian. He's still Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. And there's going to be a day that you will bend your knee. And it'll be too late in that day. And the text says, confess that Jesus is Lord. I am not my own master. You are not your own master. You are not God. But those who continually look to God and say, I've got this, are proclaiming to Him boldly that they are God. I can do what you promise only you can do. I can do it. I'll save myself. I'm God. And friends, that's rebellion to an infinite degree. Confess that Jesus is Lord, which is to confess simultaneously that you are not Lord. Believe in your heart. The righteousness that is by faith believes in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Belief is not simply a matter of the mind. Scriptural belief in the deepest area of thinking in all of the Bible doesn't happen in the mind. Oh yes, we are logical and we use reason and I want to appeal to you to use your mind. The Apostle Paul tells Young Timothy, to think over these things, God will give you understanding in everything. We are not to check our brains when we walk through the door. But true saving faith is not a matter of intellectual assent. It's not a matter of a collection of data that we simply agree to. And so many have recited a creed, read a confession, said, I believe, I believe, been confirmed, whatever it may be, and have had no life, no root at all in their soul. They've not been born again. This is not a matter of the letter, of saying appropriate things. It's a matter of belief in the heart. Believe in your heart. The core of who you are. And only God can do that in you. A non-believer can't make himself or herself a believer. Only God can make you believe in your heart. Belief is not something we carry around in our back pocket. Belief is supernatural. It's a gift from on high. It looks very natural because we see people believing this thing or that thing. 
and taking their mind and running down whatever philosophical rabbit trail they want to run down or ever, whatever theological rabbit trail they want to run down, but true saving faith that says from the deepest part of who we are, I believe Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and there's nobody or nothing that can shake that. That comes from God. But the call this morning is to believe, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. These are truths that you've heard before from Christian friends, neighbors. Jesus is alive. Well, what's the big deal? He never died again. That's the big deal. There are other resurrections we see in the Bible, but they're different. Revivification. They weren't resurrections. Lazarus was not resurrected. He didn't have a resurrected body. He came back from the dead. Jesus came back with a resurrected body. And he never died again. He is alive. We, we serve a risen Lord. Jesus, reading through Luke this week, and just he's given at least three times where we're told he talks to the disciples, the apostles, and tells them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. Be buried for three days and then be raised again. And they didn't have ears to hear it. Jesus told us this would happen. And if he's not alive, if he is not resurrected from the grave, then the Apostle Paul tells us that this is, you know, some people say, well, if Jesus, if this wasn't even true and, and Jesus isn't alive, I've heard Christian, well-meaning, well-intended Christian people say, well, I would, still, I would still follow the teachings of the Bible and I'd still, you know, be a Christian because this is the best way to live. And the Bible tells us that's foolish. If Jesus isn't alive, this is all nonsense and you should feel sorry for us. There's a lot of better things I could think to do on Sunday morning than come hang out with you guys just hearing from a book if this isn't true. And if it's not true and Jesus is, alive, Jesus is not alive, Sundays should be for fishing, for goodness sake. Right, Ryan? If Je no, uh, Ryan. I pointed at Ryan, not Terry. I said, Ryan. I don't know. If, if Terry, if you like fishing too. If Jesus isn't alive, then what are we doing here? Honestly. But if He is alive, it changes everything. And you're, conf you're confronted with a truth about reality. Jesus is alive. He conquered the grave. He told us He would do it. And you're called this morning to believe that. To believe. I believe Jesus did that. I believe He's alive and reigning forevermore at the right hand of the Father and one day He's coming back. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. He defeated death for sinners. He died so that sinners may live. It's the good news of the Gospel of Jesus. And if you believe that message, if you believe that from your heart, confess your sins, confess that Jesus is Lord, and believe that, he, that God raised Jesus from the dead, here's the promise. You will be saved. You will be saved. This is a promise from God. There's no mountain to climb. There's no valley to scale. It's not that complicated. You say, I've gone too far. You've not gone too far. Who do you think you are? The arrogance that is a person who thinks, if I walked into a church, that church would crumble. My gosh, buddy. You kidding me? Do you think God's shaking in His boots over you? Who are you? Nobody's gone too far. And you say, well, I've, I've ran for so long. Well, welcome to a Heavenly Father who comes running your way. Believe this message. 
Now, it's not a formula. Notice, the, notice in verse 9 the order. Confession with the mouth, belief in the heart second. Now, look at verse 10. It's interesting. Almost the exact same thing is stated in the opposite way. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. The order switched. Isn't that interesting? I think people are really good at making formulas. And we're really good at coming up with a sinner's prayer or a repeat after me kind of thing. And then we're really good at trusting in formulas rather than trusting in Jesus. And I love that the formula is exploded here. Because in verse 9, it's mouth-heart. Verse 10, it's heart-mouth. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And I think that's what it looks like when Jesus saves somebody. It's not a cookie-cutter thing. It involves heart at a belief level, confession, repentance. There's some commonalities to all of our conversions. To everyone who is saved, there's some common themes that are there. But they're all unique, individual stories about how we got there. How God brought us there. Some prayed a sinner's prayer. Some have never even heard what is a sinner's prayer. And yet, there's been confession and repentance and faith from the inside out. In verse 9, there's one order. In verse 10, there's another order. We can't put our trusts in formulas. We're called to put our trust in Jesus. A prayer has never saved anyone. Anyone who is saved is only saved by Jesus. Our repentance has never saved anyone. Jesus saves the repentant. It's a big difference. We look back, if you look back in your story and you think, okay, was I really sorry enough? Did I really mean it? It's not about that. We don't believe in salvation by being genuine enough. The message of the cross isn't salvation by being heartbroken enough, or repenting enough, or believing enough. It's not about going through appropriate steps. It's about Jesus who's powerful to save. And when that happens, when God is working in our life, there's an outworking of what God is doing internally. So something comes out. If a person is saved, if a person is going to believe in Jesus, then it has external appearances. You've heard me say this before. Paul Washer said it like this. If you walk down the street and get hit by a Mack truck, your physical appearance is going to be changed. Right? Blood and guts everywhere. Smashed into the ground. You can't stay the same. Spiritually speaking, you can't believe in Jesus and stay the same. Something comes out. There's a change. It comes out. There's an internal work that comes outside of you. And so some people, that looks different. Somebody can tell you the date and the time when they were saved. Down to almost the millisecond. I remember exactly where I was, the exact pew, and I can tell you exactly where I was. Right in the kitchen my, with my dad sitting in the back. My dad and mom right in the kitchen at 606 Carbon Street in Marion, Illinois. I can't tell. I was five years old. I can't tell you a date and time, but I know the exact place. I got to stand in that exact same spot about two months ago. Right where I knelt down and believed in my heart where Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right there. I got to stand there. Some of you remember exact place, time. And then for others, here's, here's your conversion story. I don't remember exactly, but it was in 1975. It was in 1997. It was summertime. 
and I had felt the burden of my sin. It had been growing for years, for months. And during this season, what God did internally worked out externally. And from the inside out, I confessed and believed that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the point is, when the message of the gospel confronts you, and God is at working work in you, that divine work becomes visible and it works itself out of you, out of your mouth, and out of your heart, and out of your life. It involves internal belief and external response. And that's why nobody can say, well, if you're going to really truly be saved, it's got to be exactly like, if you don't know the date and the time, you're not saved. That, that's a lie. And there are people that actually say that. That's not true. But here's what is true. If you've never repented and believed, if there's never been a season of life where your life has been turned upside down, where you knew you met the king and been changed forever by it, then you are not saved. If you've recited a creed or recited the words, it doesn't mean that you are saved. Have you believed in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead? Now who's this for? We've said it in several different ways, but look at verse 11 through 13. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This message is for everyone who will believe. It's not just for the Jew, it's for the world. It's for everyone. And when we think about this in a group of people who love God's sovereign grace, and I love God's sovereign grace, my life has been forever turned upside down by it. And in chapter 4, chapter 9, if you've not been with us, we've been talking about the doctrine of election that's in chapter 9. And the doctrine of election, it has both national implications and it has individual implications. Just right there in the text. But one of the reasons I know that personal election is true and national election is true is in this passage, verse 11 through 13, this is not about nations, it's about individuals. It's about individual people, people with actual names. And as surely is, as election is for personal people, this is for personal people, individuals. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we try to think through the, the things theologically. You know, you guys get the story. You know, people uh, get into dialogue and conversation about Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, and we get into theological knots and all of this. And I'm so far beyond that. Honestly, there's times that I've, I've wondered, like, I don't even see the conflict anymore. And some of you know the conflict I'm talking about, and some of you are like, just get on to Romans 10, man. Um, but for those who love sovereign God's sovereign grace, I want to be careful that we don't love God's sovereign grace in Romans chapter 9 more than we love Romans chapter 10. I want to love both together the same. And Romans 10 makes it so simple. Hey man, hey woman, if you'll believe in Jesus, if you'll call on His name, you'll be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It does not matter who you are. Jesus came for the world. And if you'll have Him, if you're downtrodden, if you felt that nobody's ever loved you, the answer isn't God coming along and saying, well, you're really lovable and you're not a sinner. It's not that God comes and gives you a pep talk. God actually shows you that you're worse than you ever imagined you could be, but He loves you more than anyone ever has. He loves us. He loves you. Say, man, I, I've, I've lived life, a lot of life. 
Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, it's unbelievably clear. You guys see it? Look at verse 11 with your own eyes. And say you're the person that feels far from God, doesn't even know if you're saved. Look at verse 11. This is God's very words. It's not my words, it's God's words. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on Him. You want riches bestowed on you this morning? I'm not talking about jewels and a crown on your head. I'm talking about jewels and a treasure so much more valuable than that. You want riches coming your way? Give God nothing. Don't tell Him a formula. Just believe in your heart. Jesus, You are who You say You are. You're Lord, I'm not. And He will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in theological circles, we lean to one of these directions. And we want to pick God's sovereign grace and election or everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. God chooses whom He will save. Absolutely true. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Absolutely true. Yes and amen. He bestows riches on all who call on Him. Let me just ask you this. Why don't you want to call on Him this morning if you don't know Him? I think the majority of the people in this room, as we've stated the last couple of weeks, the majority of the people in this room are Christians. But there are some who are not in here. And you know who you are because the Holy Spirit is maybe, maybe not, but the Holy Spirit's probably convicting you right now. Why don't you call upon the name of the Lord? Why would you not? And if you don't this morning, I, I would just argue that that's just pride. It's just pride. It's just you don't want them. It's because you want your own way better or more. Or you trust yourself more than God. And I just want to appeal to you, call upon the name of the Lord. He's got riches to bestow on you. And you can have them this morning. If you don't call on Him, well then, you won't receive His riches. You won't receive eternal life. You will receive eternal death. But if you call on Him, you'll have Him. Now, how kind is it of God? How kind is it of God if, to, to say that? Everyone who will call on me, not just the Jew, the Gentile also, will be saved. Is bringing nothing to him and having nothing to contribute to this, having nothing you can give him, is that below you? Because if you think that's below you, you won't come. But if by God's grace you can say, God, I have nothing, he'll give you everything. So it's Christmas time. Hustle, bustle, lights, a lot of fun things. Human activity is everywhere. The mall, once a year, is busy. <laughs> but we think about Christmas, and I want you to I want to unite the Scrooges in the room and Santa Clauses in the room. I want us to be united here. Christmas time is about Jesus coming. He's come, folks. He's come for us. He's come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's a celebration that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a celebration that I don't have a mountain to climb. 
There's no ascent for me to make. There's no descent for me to make. There's nothing for me to do. It's all been done. The message of Christmas is that Jesus came to finish something, not just to start something, and that He did. God cares. Jesus Christ took on human flesh to save mankind. Believe in Him. Confess your sins. You don't, have, you don't know the formula, just say, Jesus, save me. Because your words can't save you, Jesus does. My friend Cody Moe, Cody and Rachel, you know him. I'll never forget, I was preaching John 2 and over the last church we were part of. And I was preaching through John 2 about how the bridegroom wasn't prepared, but Jesus, the great bridegroom, groom, picked up the slack. He did for the groom what the groom was not doing for himself. And I opened it up for people to receive, and Cody came up, and he wouldn't mind me telling you this. And he came up, and I just, I grabbed him, and he was crying. I knew God had been working on his heart for a long time. And I just told him, hey, Cody, listen, man, just say, Jesus saved me. And he said, Jesus saved me. And he just, my shirt was sopped, and we just like hit his snot and tears on it. We just cried together. And you know what? Jesus saved him. Cody's not the same man as he used to be. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Christmas time is a great thing, great time of the year to remember, to think about it. To think about this Wednesday or Tuesday, whenever Christmas is, and think about that dinner that you're going to have with family members that may not know the Lord, and to pray for them. Maybe this year, maybe this is their year that they call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. May it be. If you don't know Him this morning, will you call on the name of the Lord today? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank You for Your grace. I ask that you would lead this time of singing. For those who are in Christ in the room, I just ask the words of these songs that we sing, they're always so focused on you. I pray that uh, we would just be thankful, thankful for your grace to us. And uh, as we sing, sing, we'd just be filled with joy and just lead. Holy Spirit, I trust you're going to do that. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you this morning, I just ask that they would repent of their sins and they would believe in you. They would repent of their sins and they would believe in you. And I just ask you to overwhelm them with feelings of conviction, and I pray that they would feel, uh, I pray that they would feel condemnation in ways they've never felt it before, where the only solution is to cry out to you. And yes, you heard me say that right. I pray that non-believers in here would feel so condemned that they would cry out for grace. That they would know their only way out. My only hope is if God would have mercy on me. And we're told right in your word, God, that you will. Thank you that you love us. It's going to be our joy to sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.